you please turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to look at two passages, first in Matthew chapter 1. So we're in uh, Matthew chapter 1. God's Word. Um, This is Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Then if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Well, we have Luke's record of the genealogy of Christ, beginning at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Isli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel the son of Neri, the son of Milchai, the son of Adai, 
the son of Kosum, the son of Ilmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. James Montgomery Boyce, in his book, The Christ of Christmas, tells the following story that Rom Blankley, a former area director for Campus Crusade for Christ, was walking through the student union of the University of Pennsylvania one day when he saw a student reading the Bible. He remembered Philip's approach to the Ethiopian, so he walked over to him and said, do you understand what you are reading? The student replied, no, as a matter of fact, I don't. I'm reading the genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and Luke, and I don't understand them because they seem to be different. Blankley sat down and explained the genealogies. And as a result of that explanation, the young man came to faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. End quote. This is perhaps surprising to some of you who have perhaps viewed the genealogies of Jesus as verses that are best skipped over so that we can get to the real parts of the Christmas story. And while the genealogies are admittedly not as exciting to read as many other parts of Scripture, they do serve a purpose. Reminds you of the words of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So all scripture is profitable or useful. The Holy Spirit wanted these genealogies recorded, and it is worth pondering what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in having these words recorded for us. It should not surprise us that Satan would want to attack God's word and especially attack it at the points where it teaches important truths. For Satan is the destroyer and he knows Christ's words are the words of life. He doesn't want the life of fellowship with God for himself or anybody else. He knows the word of God better than we do. And he also knows it is true. That is at least in terms of what it says. Satan's relationship to the truth reminds us that knowing the truth and submitting to it are two very different things. 
Satan wants us, he wants all of mankind to join him in his rebellion against God by refusing to use God's word as our guide for faith and life. And so with that in mind, Satan's goal is to discredit scripture. And his main strategy is to have us believe that the Bible is full of contradictions and that it has things in it that are impossible to believe. And so it's an unreliable source of truth. And sinful man is willing to go along with Satan in this approach to God's word because man is not typically willing to admit openly that he rejects God's word out of hatred of God. Uh, The unregenerate man insists that he is a reasonable person who seeks truth and is willing to believe whatever is true as long as there is evidence. And he wants to be thought of as neutral when it comes to evaluating God and the truth of the Bible. Of course, we have, for, we have Romans 1, which tells us, to the contrary, that the unbeliever is actually biased against God. It says in Romans 1 that the ungodly and unrighteous suppress the truth. So while the ungodly know something of the truth, they don't want to believe it, and so they take up various forms of pushing down the truth. They don't typically admit in a straightforward way, I hate God, I'm not going to do what he says, I know that he exists and I should honor him and be thankful, but instead I'm going to be an idolater who worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. Uh, There's very very rarely anyone that's going to say things in that sort of a way. No, they hide behind reason and so-called science, which Paul calls man's wisdom. They want to hide behind the arguments of academia, which make it an utterly unreasonable and even crazy thing to believe that the Bible is a source of truth. The ungodly want to be able to argue that their unbelief is a perfectly reasonable thing, which is their way of excusing their unbelief. They can discredit the Bible as a trustworthy source of instruction and wisdom from God. Then, in their minds, they don't have to give it the time of day. And to that end, they scour the Bible, looking for contradictions, looking for other evidences that can support their conviction that the Bible is just this book of myths. They're eager to come up with these aha moments where they can say, ha, finally found here a contradiction. They want to be able to rub in what they believe are these contradictions in the Bible. So even the Christmas story has been put through the scrutiny of unbelieving men. Let me say something about this, especially to you young adults who are starting to branch out into the world. You are more and more beginning to think for yourselves, and it's a normal part of growing up to think through the things that you've been taught at home about God and his word. You need to decide for yourself whether or not these things are what you personally believe. And this formative time in your thinking is happening right at the very moment that you are being exposed to more and more of the thinking of unbelievers. And especially if you attend a public college or university, although I can vouch that even at Christian colleges, uh, you also will find yourself being bombarded by unbelief, by the unbelief of both professors and students who have very carefully crafted arguments for why they are unbelievers. They're actually proud of their unbelief. And they will proudly insist, boldly insist, that being an intellectual and a denier of God go hand in hand. They'll say things like, only the stupid and simple believe the Bible. And what you must keep in mind is that they're not coming to these beliefs through an objective evaluation 
even though they will tell you that having an open mind to the truth is always the way of science and of the true academic. No, while knowing there is a God, they choose to hate him and then come up with excuses for not believing in him. And so there are always going to be excuses. There are going to be excuses coming from new angles. There will always be arguments that are made in support of unbelief. The question is whether the scriptures are truly unreasonable. Two of the main points of attack in the Christmas story are the virgin birth of Christ and his genealogies. And uh, we want to consider this week um, the genealogies, next week the virgin birth of Christ, but we want to consider these, these two areas under, first of all, what does the scripture teach on these subjects? And second, is it, is it reasonable to believe scripture's testimony? And then third, is there in fact good reason to believe scripture's testimony? And while the unbelieving world raises what it says are problems with scripture, a careful study of the matters at hand actually leads to the opposite conclusion that what the Holy Spirit records for us is perfect. Perfect not only in the sense of being truth, but also perfect in the sense of accurately and consistently supporting what the Bible tells us about Jesus as one who is both God and man, without sin, come to save us from our sins. So this morning, let's take some time to consider what the Holy Spirit teaches us from the genealogies of Jesus as we find them in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. And uh, we want to note similarities and differences. And of course, it's the differences that the unbeliever latches onto and says, aha, I've caught now the Bible in a contradiction. Well, we first of all notice the, the similarities. We can point to how in both uh, genealogies they list the same ancestors from Abraham, uh, between Abraham and David. So there's that consistency. And as for differences, uh, many of them have nothing to do with any even form of contradiction. Some are not problematic. Uh, we notice that Matthew begins with Abraham and thus traces Jesus back to the man who became known as the father of believers. Uh, Abraham, by faith, trusted God's covenant promise that he would have an heir through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that covenant promise was about the coming of Jesus. And it was appropriate that Matthew, who was writing his gospel account to Jews, would trace his, uh, that is, Jesus' lineage back to Abraham the father of the Jews. So that makes perfect sense. And so Matthew begins with Abraham. He traces Jesus' line to David, and then through Solomon, eventually to Jacob, quote, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, end quote. And Matthew explains that in his geology, genealogy, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, then 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation to Christ, 14 generations. Uh, there's no reason to believe that Matthew was saying that all generations that had lived during those times could be accounted for by these three lists of 14. Uh, we know, in fact, that there are gaps. Um, the all of verse 17 can be explained as referring to only the generations from Abraham to David, since we know that the gaps exist in the later groupings. But it was not uncommon in Old Testament genealogies to have gaps. 
uh, they would purposely limit the number to the most well-known ancestors, and they would typically limit the number for ease of memorization. So this is not something that is, is weird to, to the Jews in, in, in their genealogies. And then when we compare Matthew's genealogy with Luke's, we find that Luke doesn't start with Abraham like Matthew does, but rather Luke goes in reverse order. He starts with Joseph and then traces Jesus' line back to Adam. So these are really just differences in style, differences in approach. Meanwhile, there are some significant differences to which the world says, aha, here, this is a contradiction. What they point out is that in Luke's genealogy, Joseph is said to be the son of Heli, while Matthew says Joseph's father was Jacob. That seems to be a rather clear contradiction. The sentiment of the world is that this is just another example of the fact the Bible has errors. It's just another human book. But yet there are some very good explanations that have been offered that make sense of these discrepancies. And, and uh, we recognize that these things make sense when they are understood in their context. And the first explanation that I want to bring to your attention, and by the way, this is an explanation that was supported by Machen, uh, one of the founding fathers of the OPC. Uh, he says that Matthew and Luke, for good reason, trace Joseph back through two different lines from David, one, the one of Solomon and the other of Nathan. The one is a line of royal succession, and the other is Joseph's actual physical descent. So Matthew gives us the line of Joseph through his father Jacob, back to David through the royal line of Solomon, and then all the way back to Abraham. In Matthew's genealogy focused on royal succession, we are not to understand Jacob as Joseph's immediate biological father, but in a loose sense, his father as a relative that preceded him in terms of royal succession. Uh, the point is that Jacob uh, was the latest male son of David who could claim the royal line just prior to Joseph. Joseph, though not a direct descendant of Solomon, but still a son of David, would be considered as eligible for the throne if no other descendants of Solomon were present. And so Matthew's point is to say Joseph was next in line, next in the line of succession as king. Meanwhile, Luke gives us the actual physical line of descent that has Joseph as a son of David through Nathan. There's a related theory that two marriages were involved, that Joseph's mother was first married to Heli, who was Joseph's biological father. Presumably, Heli died, and Joseph's mother married Jacob, who by adopting Joseph made him a legal heir to the throne of Solomon. So there's a number of different approaches that can be taken. But this would mean that Joseph could trace his lineage in two ways back to David. On the one hand, tracing his lineage to David through Solomon, and on the other hand, to David through Nathan. And I want to eventually explain to you why there is this interest. In fact, it's a very important thing that Joseph can be traced back to both of these lines. But first, I want to give another, another view, another explanation, what I believe is a better explanation for why these two genealogies have different fathers, at least seemingly so, for Joseph. And it goes like this, that Matthew gives us Joseph's line of physical descent uh, 
from the royal line of Solomon that goes back to David. So this is a slightly different view. Um, the first view says that, that Matthew actually does not give the physical line of descent, but I believe this better explanation uh, does say that. It says Matthew gives us Joseph's line of physical descent. So, so Joseph was from David through Solomon. Luke actually gives us the line of Mary, whose father was Heli, who can then trace her heritage through him back to David through David's son, Nathan. In other words, God, uh, in other words, Matthew connects Jesus to the line of Joseph, while Luke connects Jesus to the line of Mary. And this actually fits the language that each of the genealogies uses, because Matthew uses the rather formal language of how each father begat a son. So we believe that Matthew's focus is on actual physical descent. He's giving us Joseph's line. And interestingly, when we get to, up to Jesus, Matthew does not say Joseph begat Jesus, but that Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This language fits perfectly, notice, with the virgin birth of Jesus. Meanwhile, Luke uses looser language that allows for a number of family relationships. Luke doesn't use the actual wording son of. Now, that's how it's translated here in our English translations, but we don't actually find that exact wording in the Greek, but rather of the, or simply the, it can be translated of. Now, he does begin with the word son when he says Jesus was the supposed son of Joseph, um, that there in the Greek, there's the word son. Um, and, and of course, even as he does that, the language Luke uses shows us that Jesus didn't actually have Joseph as his biological father. But regardless, the text goes on to say rather simply of Heli, of Mathat. The word son is not present. And the idea is either that Joseph or Jesus is the son of these men, or at least has some family connection to these men. Uh, we might be inclined at first glance to think that Luke is speaking of Joseph as the son of Heli, but the sense might better be this, Jesus being the son as was supposed of Joseph, but in reality a son of Heli. Or Joseph the son-in-law of Heli, because again, Luke is using very loose language. Family relationships could be, it could be son, it could be son-in-law, um, the loose language Luke uses would allow either understanding. In other words, Luke could very well be telling us that Jesus was of Heli, which would mean that Heli was actually Mary's father, or we could arrive at the same conclusion if Luke is connecting Joseph to Heli as a son-in-law to his father-in-law. But either way, Heli is the father of Mary, which would mean Luke is tracing Mary's lineage back to David through his son, Nathan. In the grand scheme of things, this means that both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. And scripture teaches um, that both were, in fact, related to David. Uh, Mary and Joseph, remember, go to Bethlehem for the census because Joseph, we are told, was of the house and lineage of David. And in many places, Jesus is called the son of David, and David is referred to as his father. And the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 1.3 that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. So Jesus was not related to David by simply adoption through Joseph. 
Jesus was biologically connected to David. And since Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus' only connection physically and biologically to David would be through his mother Mary. So this brings us to consider the question why the Holy Spirit would record for us these two significantly different genealogies. Genealogies that the world says are problematic, genealogies that, as we shall see, are actually perfect from the perspective of what the Holy Spirit intends to communicate. And first of all, I want to point out that we recognize that we do have a genealogy. It's important that we have a genealogy of Jesus' actual biological descent. And second, it is important that we understand Jesus' connection to the royal line. And it's not always realized, but Jesus could not be in Joseph's line and actually be a legitimate king of David. That's an important point. I'll say that again. It's not always realized, but Jesus could not be in Joseph's line, could not be a physical descendant of Joseph and actually be a legitimate king of David. We begin with the first premise that it is important that we have a genealogy of Jesus' actual biological descent. The prophecies of Scripture going way back to the time of David were consistent in promising a Messiah who would be the son of David. Psalm 132.11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And David was promised in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It was widely understood by the Jewish people that the Messiah would be a king, descended from David, that he would have a kingdom that is forever. He would reign forever. And when the angel announced the coming of Jesus to Joseph, Joseph was addressed as, quote, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. When the birth of Jesus was announced to Mary by the angel, we are told in the context that she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And of her, the, the angel said, said uh, he will be great, of her, that is, of her son. Um, the angel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And while we can recognize Jesus' legal connection to David through Joseph by adoption, Jesus was a physical descendant of David through Mary. And uh, this biological connection to David through Mary explains 
why it would make perfect sense for Luke to present a different genealogy than that of Matthew. This is the Holy Spirit's way of connecting Jesus to David biologically through Mary. It's at the same time vital that Jesus be connected to the royal line of David, which took place primarily and formally, formally uh, in, a, in a formal way through Joseph. It's uh, very interesting to explore Jesus' connection to the royal line of David. And as we do so, we will see how the Holy Spirit had Jesus' lineage and thus these two genealogies perfectly planned. So the royal line proceeded from David through Solomon. And the typical understanding of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is that Joseph was physically in the line of David from Solomon and thus of the royal line. But one fact that is not talked about much is that with Jeconiah, the line of Solomon was cursed. Jeconiah is mentioned in Matthew 11, or in chapter, in Matthew 1 verse 11, as the last descendant of David through Solomon, who lived at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And notice what it says in Jeremiah 22.30 about this Jeconiah, or Coniah as his name varied says, thus says the Lord, he's talking about Jeconiah or Keniah, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah, end quote. This curse is confirmed when we consider the names of Jeconiah's descendants, which are recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 3, and notice how not one of them sat on the throne of David. So then where does this leave Joseph? As a descendant of Solomon, as a descendant of Jeconiah. That means that while Joseph was an heir to the throne, he was the heir of a line that was cursed in terms of actually reigning. Meanwhile, Mary was of a different line, a line that connected Jesus to David through Nathan. This was a legal line, not the royal line. Nathan was actually older than Solomon, and theoretically he had a right to the throne that was given to Solomon. So a son of Nathan could reign, but only if there was no legal heir from the royal line of Solomon. We can see now how Jesus' genealogies provide us with information that proves Jesus is the legitimate heir of David's throne despite all of the confusing details. If Jesus had been a physical descendant of Joseph, he would have been a legitimate heir of David's royal line, but not able to reign because of this curse. At the same time, by having Joseph as his adoptive father, Jesus was legally of that royal line. And yet there was a way for Jesus to reign as a legitimate heir of David, a way to escape the curse. Jesus is related to David through Mary, a descendant of David's oldest son, Nathan, And because there was no legitimate heir from Solomon's line, as Joseph was next in line, but he couldn't reign, Jesus was next in line as his adopted son, but could reign as a descendant of David's son, Nathan. When we put everything together, we begin to see how God did not leave anything to chance and was able to legitimize Jesus' reign despite the potential problems. So the world sees two different genealogies, and they see this as problematic. By faith, we see that they are actually perfect. 
The Messiah is truly man, a descendant of David, a legitimate heir to his throne. By being born of Mary, Jesus is of a line connected to David that was not cursed. By being adopted by Joseph, Jesus was of the royal line, but because he had no biological connection to the royal line, the curse didn't apply. People of God, you can't make these things up. If you try, you can't make them up. Our God is a God of detail, and these genealogies assures us that he was making sure that everything for our salvation through Jesus Christ was happening, happening exactly as it needed to happen. This is a sure sign of God's love and of his sovereign power to actually bring about his plan of salvation for us. That young man who was trying to understand these genealogies, remember, when these things were explained to him in a way similar to how I've just explained them here, he came to faith. He came to see that Jesus was sent by God in exactly the right way to be our Savior. He is the son of David. He is the eternal king promised by God, and he will be your king, your king, an eternal king over an eternal kingdom, if you will but look to him as your savior from sin. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for these genealogies, (coughs) these genealogies that are so perfect in keeping with who Jesus is as one born only of Mary biologically and yet able to have that connection to Solomon through, through Joseph, but yet able to escape this curse that prevented any of Jeconiah's descendants from even reigning. Father, we thank you for how we can see the Holy Spirit is pointing us to how Jesus does fit uh, exactly what's needed exactly what, is, what was predicted and prophesied concerning Jesus as a descendant of David, as our king. Lord, uh, we pray that we each one would be looking to Jesus, who's now reigning at your right hand as their savior. We, Lord, pray that uh, we would recognize our need for him, that we would recognize uh, why he came, that he came to save us from our sins. He came to establish a kingdom made up of sinners, who have received his grace. And uh, Father, we pray that each one of us might know that we are a part of his glorious kingdom under his glorious reign. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.